This is episode 29 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and in this episode, we discuss how and why to form a trach team in your facility. We discuss challenges that SLPs face when dealing with trach patients, the benefits of forming a trach team, and the SLP's role in improving speech and swallowing in these patients with tracheostomies. Today's guest is Carmen Bartow. She is a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and she is currently employed at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, specializing in dysphagia management, trach vent intervention, and in head and neck cancer. She is a member of the VUMC Tracheostomy Consult Service, and in addition to her clinical responsibilities, she facilitates a head and neck cancer support group and recently taught dysphagia as an adjunct instructor at Tennessee State University. Carmen put together a great outline of how to form a trach team, as well as several helpful references. They can be found at bit.ly B-I-T forward slash S-Y-P podcast 029 or text S-Y-P 029 to 44222. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm really excited for this episode and next week's episode where they are both all about trachs. And I know that the the title is how to form a trach team, but really Carmen just gives so much great information about all things trach. I mean, even if you don't work in a hospital, even if you work in skilled nursing or home health with patients with trachs, there's a lot of really good things to consider here. So first, I must apologize to Carmen and the team at Vanderbilt. We recorded this about a month ago, and I've had some kind of major technical difficulties with the podcast. I've had some issues going on, and I wasn't able to get this out in enough time to announce their medical speech pathology best practices conference that is this coming weekend. So I sincerely apologize to you guys. Um, Just want everyone to know this is an annual conference, so put it on your calendar for next year. But if you are in the Nashville area and you can get to this conference, it is this weekend, February 23rd and 24th at Vanderbilt. It covers head and neck cancer, dysphagia assessment, movement disorders, managing dysphagia and palliative care, medical speech pathology services across the continuum, delirium, and esophageal dysphagia. That's quite a lineup. And presenters will discuss best practices in the diagnosis and treatment of communication and swallowing disorders for adults with a variety of diagnoses. The conference will focus on practical approaches to managing these patients and will emphasize the importance of implementing evidence-based practice in evaluation and treatment. Our physician colleagues from radiology, medical oncology, and neurology will share their expertise and highlight the importance of collaboration between the physician and the SLP. Invited guest speaker is Dr. Joe Murray, who will focus on improving the accuracy and reliability of a practicing clinician's interpretation of clinical and instrumental swallowing assessments. Oh, crap. I really wish I could have gone to that. <laughs> Any of you guys are anywhere near Nashville, get to this conference next weekend. Um, you can go to vanderbilt.edu forward slash continuing education to register. And again, it's annual, so maybe you guys can get it next year. So again, I apologize, Vanderbilt and Carmen, that I did not get this episode out in time to, to give you guys enough time to hopefully get some more people there. But 
Sounds like a great course. Now, if you guys are looking for another really good uh, CEU course, this is one that I'm really interested in. Uh, if you remember Dr. John Ashford back from episode three, he talked about the three pillars of pneumonia and oral care, and also Dr. Jamie Fisher from episode 17, she talked a lot about trachs in that episode and if they cause dysphagia and kind of some frequently asked questions about trachs. They are teaming up for a course also in Nashville. I don't know why Nashville people get all these great courses, uh, but this one is April 7th or 8th, and it's preparing SLPs for tracheostomy and ventilator patient care training course. And it is, like I said, in Nashville at the Select Specialty Hospital. And this is a hands-on training course specifically for SLPs. So it's not just RTs or nurses or ENTs talking generally. It's specifically for SLPs and it's specifically hands-on. So you guys will get your hands on these trachs and speaking valves and really learn how to use them. So in this course, you'll be trained in the clinical methods and procedures for assessment and treatment of communication and swallowing for trach and vent patient care. The information in this course is specific and comprehensive to the role and responsibilities of the SLP. In this course, you'll be trained in the application of multiple types of valves, such as Pasimir, Shekini, and Shiley valves. Participants will engage in a special highlighted training session on NPO status, aspiration pneumonia, and oral care by our beloved Dr. John Ashford. For a high-quality learning experience, this course is limited to only 30 participants to accommodate small group training sessions that further break down into one-on-one -on -one case simulation training with multiple experienced expert instructors, including Dr. Jamie Fisher herself. So for more information or to register for preparing SLPs for Drake and Vent Patient Care Training Course, you can view the flyer in the show notes or visit www.sas.com. PLLC.com. That's www.sassplc.com. So that sounds like an awesome course too, especially when have we ever gotten to get our, our hands on some actual trachs and speaking valves just in a learning environment. So that sounds great. So look up that course if you guys are interested. All right. And since we are talking about all things trach, I'm really excited to discuss this latest product with you guys. It's called the Shekinah Speaking Valve. I know I've, I've heard of it. I'm sure some of you have heard of it, but what exactly is it? So it is a dynamic speaking valve based on a ball design with a rotating 180 degree feature, which is associated with significantly lower airway resistance when compared to flapper speaking valves. The Shekinah speaking valve allows trach patients to achieve a more normalized airway system with reduced secretions and pulmonary infections, reduced aspiration, improved swallowing, and olfaction as compared to the flapper speaking valves. The Shekinah speaking valve is the only valve on the market that can be used in conjunction with HMEs, which are humidity moisture exchangers, specifically to the Shekinah HME, allowing patients the benefits of speech along with humidification and filtering of inhaled air. So to learn more about the Shekinah speaking valve and its features, please go to the Airway Company website at www.theairwaycompany.com or you can call 1-800-707-8458. Dr. Shekinah has been gracious enough to offer all Swallier Pride listeners a 10% off any of their speaking valves or HMEs. So if you go to the Airway Company or you call that number, give them promo code SYP, uh, you guys can get 10% off any speaking valves or HMEs. And just to let you know, I do receive a small commission when you use that SYP promo code, but just wanted to be clear with that. Um, and as always, thank you to our sponsor, EndoHD, for keeping this podcast going all through the month of 
February. And if you guys would still like to contribute giving back to this podcast that gives so much to you, you can go to patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride. Even a dollar, even a dollar an episode really helps to keep these episodes cranking out and keep them coming out to you weekly. So, oh, and one more thing, the medical SLP solution is officially open and live. So if you're finding yourself totally mind blown by a lot of these episodes and really wanting to learn more and have access to a lot more information and various experts in the field, then head over to medslpsolution.com and get signed up for that right away. Uh, Thanks for listening to me blab today, and hopefully you really enjoy this part one with Carmen. Hello, Carmen. Hey, Teresa. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for doing this for us. Absolutely. We get, I kind of ask weekly on Facebook, what are some topics that people are always wanting to know more about? And then trach is always a hot topic. It seems like we can't ever get enough education about that. So thank you for volunteering to talk about this topic today. You're welcome. Glad to do it. Yeah. So, and I gave a little brief description of your bio in the beginning, but can you tell everyone a little bit about who you are? Sure, sure. So um, my the majority of my career um, has been in medical speech pathology. I have mostly been in acute care. So for the last 15 years, I've been at Vanderbilt in acute care. And then I also see all of our um, outpatient dysphagia um, assessments and, and treatment. I've also done some trach and event work in an LTAC. Um, I had the opportunity to work in a different hospital many years ago, but this is where I got a lot of my trach and vent experience was at a hospital that had a progressive respiratory care unit. And so we saw lots and lots of patients on the ventilator and doing you know, lots of speaking valves in line with the vent. Um, even that was years ago and they were even doing kind of early mobility back then um, and done a little home health. I was in a skilled nursing facility. Um, but the majority of my career has been acute care. My main interests are um, trach and vent, and then I also have an interest in head and neck as well. Awesome. All right. So what are you doing now? You're at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So okay. at Vanderbilt Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. So I've been here since 1993. So love Nashville. Yeah. So here's this, uh, you know, some of the things um, that I do, um, besides just, you know, working with, um, our acute population is, um, I'm part of our tracheostomy team. So I'm definitely talk with you a little bit more about that. And then I work with our, like I said, I work with our head and neck cancer patients and sort of one of my favorite things that I do with those patients is I facilitate a head and neck cancer support. And that has allowed me to learn lots and lots and lots about the head and neck cancer patient and population and what their frustrations are. And, you know, I, I, uh, I started that group kind of thinking like, Oh, this will be, you know, really good, allow patients to really support each other. But, um, it has been incredibly rewarding and I've just learned so much from it. Yeah. Yeah. We had, when I was in grad school, we had a support group like that and everyone, it was probably one of the highlights of grad school. Everyone just loved meaningful. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was great. So yeah. Well, and you guys are getting ready to put on a big course. Is that we right? We are. We are. Yes. Thank you for letting me um, kind of talk about that. For a of course. Of course. Um, so, you know, I think it's hard sometimes to find 
medical speech pathology courses that cover lots of different topics. Um, you know, you can maybe find a language course or you can find a dysphagia course, but to really, as a medical speech pathologist, treating everything, it's hard to find a course that you can go to and feel like you're getting good information that's evidence-based, but then also something that you can take home and use. So about five years ago, we were sort of complaining in the office about having a hard time finding that course. And so we just decided, you know what, let's try to, to host a course ourselves. And um, it, this is going to be our third annual. Um, it's Medical Speech Pathology's Best Practice. And um, it has been very well received from the attendees. We've had great feedback and we even have some speech pathologists that are coming back for their third year. So that's, you know, that's a good thing. Um, but we've had a variety of topics. Um, the last two years, uh, spoken on tracheostomies, um, airway uh, complications, post-extubation dysphagia. One, uh, the first year I spoke with an ENT and we did sort of an ENT and SLP perspective. Last year, um, I spoke with a respiratory therapist and he had a whole hour on the, you know, scary mechanical ventilator and what that is and what the speech pathologist needs to know. Um, so I've been very involved in this course, um, but we, we've also had, you know, some other excellent topics on aphasia and TBI and malnutrition and what the speech pathologist needs to do with the palliative care patient. This year, we're really excited. Um, we've got some great topics. Um, we've got some of our physicians coming. So we've got um, dysphagia, dysphagia and the esophagus. One of our radiologists is presenting. Yeah, he is actually a radiologist that just, just joined us from Johns Hopkins. His name is Michael Fleming, Dr. Michael Fleming. And um, that, that will be an excellent presentation. One of the medical oncologists is coming to talk about head and neck cancer and dysphagia and head and neck cancer. We have also, let's see, we've got uh, one of our neurologists speaking on movement disorders. Um, and then lastly, and this is probably like the thing that we're most excited about, is this year we've invited a guest speaker. And so Joe Murray who everybody knows Joe Murray, you know, yes, uh, yes. wrote the book, literally. Yes. Um, he's joining us for um, the most of the day on Saturday to um, do a talk on dysphagia assessment. So he'll cover awesome. the clinical swallow valve fees. That's We're great. really excited to have him this year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's just, you know, he's fun to <laughs> Oh, a yeah. Great speaker. He's yeah. going, you know, we're, we're really excited about Yeah, him. yeah. Oh, that sounds great, Carmen. Yeah, okay, so yeah. when what so, is that? Um, it's February 23rd and 24th. Um, and it's here in Nashville. It's at Vanderbilt. And I'll send you all of the information. Yep, yep. So I'll include those in the show notes yeah, too. The so registration website. So yep. Awesome. To have people sign up. So, yeah, that sounds yeah, great. All right. So what are we going to talk about today? Um, well, the, the main thing that I was thinking we could talk about, I know you've already had um, Jamie Fisher on to talk about some dysphagia and uh, the tracheostomized patient. Um, I'm happy to talk about that if some questions come up during um, you know, this podcast, but I thought I'd talk a little bit about the tracheostomy team and just the importance that 
any really any institution that has tracheostomized patients, I believe needs to have a team in place to best manage those patients. Um, so I'm happy to talk to you a little bit about, you know, what the research is for trait teams and sort of how we got going with our trait team and then specifically what the role of the speech pathologist should be in that team. And then happy to talk to sort of in general about some of the things that we're doing with our trait patients. Great. That sounds great. Okay. So what inspired you to start the trach team? Well, so, you know, if any of your, you know, if, if you're working with trach patients or any of your listeners are working with trach patients, you um, probably realize there is often a great variation in the care and practice and, you know, and just managing those patients. So what happened with us, and I think it was sort of around the time that um, there was a switch from surgical tracheostomies to per- percutaneous tracheostomies. And so I think what happened was around the time that perch became so popular that the surgical team was really no longer managing the patient with the tracheostomy tube. Uh, I'm sorry, the patient with the tracheostomy tube. And so a patient, say an intubated patient, would need a tracheostomy tube. They would consult the service, whether it's a, a you know general surgery service or whether it's trauma, to come in, do the trach, and then that service would, is typically signing off. So that's what we were seeing. And I think it's kind of a universal, both you know national and international phenomenon that's really going on right now. And so then the patient was on, say, the CVICU service or neurology or burn or the medical service. Well, let me, so let me back you up. So there, so there used to be a surgical way of inserting the trach tube and now there's a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So basically it used to be that patients would leave the floor, go to the OR, have a surgery for the tra- the tracheotomy surgery. And then the patient would go back to the floor and that surgical team would continue to manage the tracheostomy tube. Now patients often get percutaneous trachs. So that's a, that's a procedure that's just done right at the bedside, sort of thought to be a, you know, a little bit more of a simple surgery. It's more cost-effective. Patient doesn't have to leave the floor. There's no OR time. The physicians just come to the room, they do the trach, and then they sign off oftentimes. And so then it's the primary team's responsibility to manage that tracheostomy tube. Wow, I I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can imagine, then you've got all these different services managing the patient. And sometimes the tracheostomy tube is sort of like this extra thing that nobody really thinks about. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so with that, there were all of these inconsistencies. And so we were seeing, the speech pathologists were seeing all of these inconsistencies. So we would get a consult, say, in the CVICU, and a trach would be managed one way. We'd get a consult on the MICU, and the trach would be managed another way. And so we were seeing problems such as, you know, everybody got a really big trach, even if you were a little tiny person. 
or there was no standardization in terms of downsizing the trach or cuff deflation or when a patient needed a you know, speaking valve or when the patient needed a swallowing assessment. And so we would come back to the office kind of grumbling like, oh, we need, you know, something needs to be better here. So that kind of prompted me to start looking at tracheostomy teams and whether or not our facility could use a tracheostomy team to help manage our so let me back you up a second. What, I guess, what, why does it matter if a teeny tiny person gets a big trach or a big person gets a teeny tiny trach? What, what variations can happen there? Yeah. So, so great question. Um, so for the speech pathologist, we love airflow into the upper airway, right? So we love that our patients can cough, can manage their secretions, uh, can swallow, and they're not swallowing around this, you know, great big, tra- you're trying to swallow without airflow and there's this big tracheostomy tube in place. And we love for our patients to be able to produce audible phonation. And so when a little tiny person gets a big trach, all of those functions are much more difficult. And we often have to wait and wait and wait until the patient's ready to have a downsize before they're ready to get a speaking valve before they are ready for leak speech or swallowing evaluations. So, so it's not a true representation of the patient, really. It's the, the hardware, basically, that we're fighting. Right, right. And so that was one of the issues is that so many patients were just getting big trachs. And so that caused patients significant difficulty and wait time before they were able to start eating again and talking again. Cool. All right. Yeah. Okay. So back to your trach team. So okay, you decided so, you had this so, great idea. Yeah. So, you know, we were seeing all these inconsistencies and um, I had kind of heard about tracheostomy teams managing their tracheostomized patients in a more uniform and standardized way. And so I started wondering whether or not that could be something that could be implemented at Vanderbilt. So I did a lot of different things before I sort of, you know, took that idea out to others. Um, I read several articles. Um, there's a pathologist named Tannis Cameron. She's in Australia. And they have a great model for a tracheostomy team. So I started looking at some of the things that they were doing. And once I felt like I had some information, um, I just took that to a few other people that I felt might help champion this endeavor at Vanderbilt. And we uh, got some allies um, and started meeting. We developed educational materials. We developed financial plans. Um, We developed new policies and new procedures. And we were all ready to go. And then uh, the champion that I had at that time, who was an ENT surgeon, was offered the director position at another uh, institution. And so unfortunately, he left Vanderbilt. And so then it was just a few of us left to sort of take this on. And we really struggled for a while. And there were definitely some starts and some stops and some struggles along the way. 
And in fact, it was about a three-year endeavor to get our tracheostomy team really rocking and rolling and off the ground. Um, You know, I think it's so interesting that you say three years. Like I I did another podcast last night and the woman was describing it took her two years. And I I interviewed someone a few months ago and it took her two years. You know, nothing in speech pathology happens overnight. (laughs) So I just want to stress to everyone that you need to have patience and be persistent and be resolute and it will happen. But yes, it's not going to, you don't snap your fingers and have a trach team tomorrow. Yes, that is very, very true. Yeah. And there, you know, during the whole process, I mean, there were, there were a few times that I thought, you know, this is just not going to happen here. It, it was a great, it was a great idea. Um, but especially when the um, director left and went somewhere else, we had about a six month period where everything was just on hold. And I wasn't sure whether or not we were going to be able to move forward But during that whole six-month period, all of the problems and all of the issues that really inspired me to get this going persisted. So I was still seeing all of these issues and, you know, speaking with nurses who weren't comfortable managing traits and going to see patients who, in fact, should have had a consult a week ago and had been left sitting in the hospital for a week unable to communicate. And so those frustrations that I had just sort of, you know, gave me the spark that I needed to get going again. And so the second time around, things went much more smoothly. Um, I got one of our trauma physicians on board and he really made things happen and was very interested from the get-go. So now our tracheostomy team is in its third year we are comprised of a trauma physician who is really our champion and then a nurse practitioner who I feel like our, our NP is really the face of the tracheostomy team. She's the one that rounds daily and, and sees patients and she's doing a lot of our education. I'm doing quite a bit as well. Um, then I'm on the tracheostomy team and then we have an RN who acts as the proceduralist. So we're the four main people on our tracheostomy team. We so you don't have respiratory or pulmonology? We do not. Um, I think respiratory could absolutely be key. Our team has respiratory consults, and we have spoken quite a bit with the director of respiratory care. So they're, they're um, you know, certainly a consultant, but it, they're not you know, one of the the main players on our team. I think a lot of other facilities do have a a respiratory therapist on board. And I I think that can work out very well. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. So let's talk about some of the benefits of the trach team. So now you've got every, your champion, you got everybody compiled all together. What wonderful magic do you guys work? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, some of the research um, shows benefits of the tracheostomy team, things such as reduced length of stay for trach patients, reduced hospital cost, faster decannulation. So patients are actually leaving hospitals without a tracheostomy tube in place. Um, There's fewer adverse events. And many patients also report um, improved quality of life. So there's a lot of good research, evident, you know, some evidence that shows use of a tracheostomy team can certainly 
you know, benefit the institution as well as the patient. Um, so for us, where we are, we have seen things such as reduced time to tracheostomy tube. So in the past, before we had the tracheostomy team, if a patient needed a trach, there was no specific team to go in and perform that tracheotomy. And so there was a wait time, sometimes up to 48 hours for a patient to actually get a trach. Well, that's concerning for several reasons. One, patients are left intubated even longer and patients can wean much faster from the ventilator once they're traked. So that possibly was extending the length of time the patient was on the ventilator. And then also we know that from the speech pathology standpoint, many patients have post-extubation dysphagia. And so the longer the endotracheal tube is in place, the greater likelihood that they're going to have more damage to their vocal folds or you know, vocal fold trauma because of that endotracheal tube. So now our um, tracheostomy team is consulted and sometimes patients can get traced the very same day that we get the consult. Um, if not the same day, it's the very next day. So 24 hours is kind of the max time a patient would have to wait to get a tracheostomy tube. So yeah, some other things. Um, one thing that, that's very, uh, you know, great for the speech pathologist is that we're getting orders for every single trach. So the day that the trach goes in, we have two orders. We have a speaking valve order and we have a uh, swallowing order. And that just sounds like the most magical place to live ever. <laughs> well, you know, things are perfect. Right. So much better. So yeah, yeah. much better. Yeah. Um, you know, the team is also thinking about the size of the tracheostomy tube now. Not every single person that needs a trach automatically gets a size eight. So the thought is, oh, hey, maybe this is 80-pound little grandma. Let's put an appropriately sized trach in the, you know, in on the front end. And so that's been a huge change too. Um, some other things before we had the trach team, there was really no plan for when that patient's cup should be deflated, when we should try a speaking valve, when we should do a swallowing evaluation, um, and, or, or you know, when downsizing could occur, when decannulation could occur. And now there is standardized care for all of those things. Is that standardized as in, in the research, or is that just something that you guys put in place at Vanderbilt? So... A lot of what we're doing, we've tried to extract from the research. Gotcha. Um, but, but the research is lacking. Yeah, yeah, things. absolutely. So there's a really interesting paper. I'll, I'll give it to you in the bibliography. It's a consensus statement paper on tracheostomy. There's all of these, you know, really smart people that worked with tracheostomies, and they tried to come up with, standardized care and consensus statement. And interestingly, there were so many things that they could not come up with 
standardized care. And so for some things, I think, yes, we're doing the things that, you know, it's evidence-based and, and this is, you know, what we should, what we should be doing based on what the research is telling us other things, the research is lacking. And so we're kind of figuring out what works best in our institution. So, so one of the things that one of the ENTs brought to us was downsizing. And we had always, the speech pathologists had always requested, we need this patient's trach downsized so that we can get a speaking valve in place. Well, now we might not have to wait quite as long. The um, tracheostomy team is now looking at downsizing on day five, which is a significant change from before. Um, another thing, are we have a policy that anytime a patient is not on the ventilator, their cuff is to be deflated. So cuffs okay. aren't left inflated. inflated. Yeah. Ever. And what can you can you tell everyone what the benefit of that is? Sure, sure. Well, a couple of things. Um, one, if the tracheostomy tube is small enough, it is going to restore airflow into the upper airway. And we all know that there is disuse, disuse atrophy that can occur in the pharyngeal and laryngeal musculature without any airflow into the upper airway. So getting those cuffs down to restore airflow, the normal cough, swallowing, secretion management, can be beneficial. The other, so that's sort of a you know a short-term benefit. The other thing is that it can really benefit the patient in the long term. We have a air digestive um, clinic, and we are seeing lots of patients that are coming back in um, after being intubated. Um, these are you know often in rural facilities. They were intubated for a very long time. And then they were traked for a very long time with their cuffs inflated. And then when they went to actually try to decannulate those folks who had had an endotracheal tube and a tracheostomy tube in place for so long with inflated cuffs that they now have tracheal malacia. And so when they tried to decannulate, their airways collapsed and now they have to have a permanent tracheostomy tube. So the long-term benefit of getting those cuffs deflated is that we're not causing pressure to those fragile tracheal walls, which could lead to, you know, these long-term consequences of tracheal stenosis or tracheomalacia, which yeah. is terrible for these yeah. patients that come into yeah. the hospital. So, yeah, I think there can be both short and long-term benefits. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Sure. So tell me more about what your role is on this trade team. So why, why does an SLP need to be on this team? Okay. I feel like, you know, you asked me earlier about who was on our team. Um, and I think that there are different teams and there are different team members that can be very important and very effective. But in my opinion, the two most critical members of the tracheostomy team anywhere, I think you've got to have a physician because they're going to help push things forward. Having that MD behind their name, uh, they're just able to make change more quickly than the speech pathologist. So I think they're key. The second team member that I feel like is key is the speech pathologist. I think 
nurse, a nurse can be awesome and incredibly valuable. I think a nurse practitioner can be awesome, incredibly valuable. Same with a respiratory therapist. I think there's some teams that have dietitians, but I think the speech pathologist is key in terms of not only communication and swallowing intervention, but an overall knowledge of the air digestive system. Okay. So how, how do we get started? So you've sold me. I want to start a trach team at my hospital now. Um, well, okay. So first of all, I feel like you have to go in knowing that you have to be persistent. That you have an uphill climb. You have an uphill climb. And if you're not successful in year one or year two, hang in there. Just keep trying. And there may be several starts and stops, um, but not to give up. I feel like the time and effort it's, it's well worth it when you can see the change of care before and after. So first of all, I would say go in with persistence. Um, and then secondly, I would say find allies that have the same goals in mind. And, you know, I think those goals are truly to take good care of your patients. Take good care of your tracheostomized patients. And, you know, if you can find those allies and sit down and have some powwows and figure out how to get from point A to point B, you know, you can gradually be successful. Um, I do feel like you've got to find an MD champion. You know, I, we like I, I mentioned, we had some starts and some stops, but without the MD champions behind this, we would not have gotten to the place we are today. So I, I would say those are the main, you know, the keys to be persistent, find your allies, and to, to find a champion. So let me ask you why. So you're saying it take, took you three years anyway. So what would... I guess, why would a hospital not want a trach team? I guess, do they see disadvantages or, or what was the pushback for taking so long to get it formulated? So, I, you know, I don't, so, so a couple different things. So I think my first go at it, it I started and it was a very EN, ENT driven initiative. And what I didn't take into consideration was that the majority of the tracheotomies that were performed at my facility were by our general surgeons and our trauma surgeons. So they didn't necessarily push back, but they, they didn't um, embrace it as much because I think they saw it as a very ENT-driven initiative. So certainly find out, and that was probably a mistake maybe that I made on the front end, certainly find out who's doing the majority of your traits and get them on board. There you go. That certainly helped us, you know, that certainly helped us um, on the the second go around. Um, And then secondly, you know, I I feel like for a lot of facilities, there just hasn't been anyone that has taken the initiative to start a tracheostomy team. It's not necessarily that they don't want one. Um, it's just that there hasn't been anybody that has taken initiative or that has shown what the benefits of the team could be. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of what you're saying is kind of just everything I face with doing mobile fees every day. You know, it's like 
facilities aren't opposed to it, but why would they want it or what are the benefits to it? So yeah, yeah it sometimes yeah. may take months, years to get a, a facility to come around like, oh yeah, I think this would be good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I just want to jump back in here and, you know, we know depending on the research article, anywhere from 50 to 75% of patients with a trach silently aspirate. So we do need to be using instrumentation to assess these patients for swallowing. And our sponsor, NDOHD, www.ndohd.com forward slash contact. They are a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by SLPs for conducting fees studies. It is a true high-definition fees imaging system with HD image display and capture, crisp color image, unsurpassed digital clarity, HD image with better resolution than legacy systems, and views the details of patient anatomy with double the resolution of standard definition video. So contact www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. Well, and then, you know, I think a little bit of the pushback that we had was that each service felt like they were managing their tracheostomized patients. And so we, the speech pathologists, were really the ones that were seeing the lack of standardization because we were seeing patients all over the hospital. We would see the burn patient, the CVICU patient, and the neuro patient, and we saw how inconsistent the care and management was. And so we were really the ones to kind of go, hey, wait, this is what's happening here, and this is what's happening over here. And so bringing that to everyone's attention, like, hey, we really need to do a better job of standardizing this, managing this. Um, educating staff so that once the patient uh, left the ICU and went to the floor, the floor nurse could do just as, you know, good of a job managing that patient as the ICU nurse did. And so one of our um, big initiatives, you asked uh, a minute ago too, about some of the things that, you know, have improved since we had the tracheostomy team. Um, And one of our huge endeavors and initiatives is education. And so we are constantly just on our rounds. We are educating every single day. Um, We are also, Nina is the nurse practitioner, and I are constantly doing, you know, staff education. So I'm on a six-month rotation. So every new nurse that comes into the hospital goes through nursing orientation. So I have a 45-minute lecture that I give all new nurses on tracheostomy tubes and the tracheostomy team. And we've got nurses that switched from the floor into the ICU and we're doing the same thing there. And then our nurse practitioner is also doing lots of education. So we're not only educating the staff, but we also realize that patient education needed improvements too. And so we have um, redesigned and revised all of our patient and family education materials too. So that when a patient's discharged with a tracheostomy tube, they know how to take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so you asked specifically about, you know, some of the things that we're doing with our, our trach patients. So, you know, I'm part of the tracheostomy team, but all of the speech pathologists that I work with, which there are nine of us, we are all seeing tracheostomized patients all over the hospital. So we've got several different ICUs and floors and trach patients are everywhere. And so one of the improvements that I would say is, you know, I mentioned that we're getting these early referrals. And so 
and I don't have to worry, you know, back in the late 80s. And it was a retrospective study that went back and asked patients, what was the worst part of being on the ventilator for you? Like, what was the worst part? And it listed all these things that I would think would be quite terrible. So it was pain, it was sleep deprivation, you know, inability to communicate, suctioning, um, fear, anxiety. And interestingly, um, fear and anxiety where those were looped together and then inability to communicate um, were the two worst things. You know, those were the things that patients said that was the worst part of being on the, you know, mechanical, you know, ventilator. And the article then inferred that the reason that patients felt so much fear and so much anxiety was because of the difficulty in communicating. And so, you know, I think about that when, um, you know, we're thinking about these patients and, you know, if you are, you know, are working in the ICUs, you know, when you go in and you see a patient on the ventilator, they often have no viable means of communication. They may not be able to mouth words very well, or we're really not very good lip readers. I think I saw a statistic that um, when we try to read lips, we get about 10% of what the person says. And so we're trying to read lips or the patient has weakness and they're trying to write out a message and that's not very effective. And so it's really our job to go in to these patients and we don't have to wait until they're off the ventilator to be providing assessments and treatment. And so, you know, with, with us getting those early referrals now is we're able to, you know, do some chart reviews. And of course, not every patient is ready day one after they get a trach. You know, many of those patients are too medically unstable or they're not awake and they're but there are many patients that even if they are on the vent, they're ready for our intervention. And, you know, whatever that we can do to establish some form of communication, if we can establish verbal communication, that's best. Giving them better ways to mouth words so that people can understand them or giving them um, some apps on their phone that they can use to improve communication. Um, you know, anything that we can do to help their ability to communicate and then their quality of life, I think is incredibly valuable. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.